This is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Support the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. Stevie and I are here in St. Petersburg, Florida. We just finished a two-day passage from Pensacola. The idea for this was to get easting so we don't have to wait uh, so long for weather windows and so while we had favorable weather to take us east we took advantage of that and uh, we're looking for a good weather window to cross the Gulf Stream in a few days and I'm hopeful that there will be one uh, relatively short. So obviously with the Gulf Stream uh, we're planning on crossing what most people think of the Gulf Stream that runs through the Keys, although we'll be far west of the Keys. Uh, it, it runs east to west, or it runs from the west to the east. So uh, any east wind would be wind against current, and that would make for big waves and a rough passage. And so you are really looking for a break in the prevailing easterlies when you're crossing the Gulf Stream. You can get away with maybe less than 10 knot winds that are from the east, but you certainly, or I would say most cruisers would prefer not to cross in uh, 15 knots east wind uh, crossing the eastbound Gulf Stream because that makes for some pretty big waves and a pretty difficult passage. We had a pretty easy passage. We waited... Uh, a long time, not a ton of time, but we waited over a week to get some weather that was just about right. Was uh, number one, offshore you really can't beat the waves. You cannot go into the waves uh, very well. Certainly not uh, by motor. And if you tack, then your angles are going to be not super. Uh, so, if the prevailing winds are southeast in the Gulf of Mexico they are for the most part then you're going to have a hard time making progress so typically you're going to wait for a norther but northers also tend to be strong winds and we were kind of coming we crossed at the the tail end of a norther so conceivably the norther could have got us all the way to cuba would have been an easy passage no way would have definitely been tough We would have uh, faced squalls, would have faced uh, high winds in the high 20s. And so those were things I wanted to avoid. So we went to St. Petersburg instead while we had the mild north winds. In this episode, our guest is Duena Cornell of Cornell Sailing. She wrote a wonderful book called Child of the Sea about cruising around the world in her family's first big sailboat, Adventura. I found it just a fun read and a refreshing blast from the past. You know, the year, the Iron Curtain years, uh, when much of Eastern Europe was under the thumb of the, the USSR. So I am very hopeful that by the time you get podcast number 16 this one is 15 episode 15 with Duane Cornell you will get the podcast via Cuba 
unfortunately in Cuba the Wi-Fi is very slow and very expensive and not many places have it so I cannot guarantee we'll keep with our Wednesday schedule next week but I'll try if it's possible uh, I'll release one on Wednesday next week for the next week I'm running a sale on my books how to sail around the world part-time which will tell you why I'm so eager to get to Panama so late in the uh, cruising season and slow boat to the Bahamas about our trip in 2015 to the Bahamas. Uh, How to Sail Around the World part-time for a limited time is going for 67% off. It's regular price of $2.99 and uh, Slow Boat to the Bahamas is selling for $4.99, which is about half off its regular price. If you support the podcast on Patreon, you will have access to the audiobook version of How to Sail Around the World part-time for free, and also bonus contents of many of the episodes, starting with episode 10. So we've got bonus content for the Wicked Salty interview, got bonus uh, chapters uh, from Slow Boat to the Bahamas, we've got a bonus episode for Nike Steiger of White Spot Pirates, and there will also be a bonus episode for patrons only uh, about our interview with Duania Cornell, a daughter of Jimmy Cornell. To get access to all that bonus content, just go to patreon.com slash slowboatsailing and make a pledge. It's a pleasure to speak to you. I plan to talk about your book, Child of the Sea, but I also wanted to start out by just getting an overview of Cornell Sailing and what you guys do. So I was looking at your website, and by the way, I'm a big fan of your book, Child of the Sea, and I think it's a great book, and I read that book before I read World Cruising Routes, by the way. Okay. And I, I cited it in my book, uh, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. But I'm interested also in your your activities with Cornell Sailing, and I wanted to understand what Cornell Sailing does. So one of the things that I think a lot of people have heard of, and I saw that on your website, uh, that your father, Jimmy Cornell, uh, founded the ARC Rally. But are you guys associated with the ARC Rally now? Um, no, we're not. So he did found it back in the 1980s, which came out of the first time it happened. I mean, as you can imagine, lots of people sail across the Atlantic at the same sorts of time of the year around November December and he founded he had the idea to organize just quite an informal rally just fun because nothing like that was done so he it was his idea completely and it was a huge success it's been going now for what nearly 30 years the anniversary is coming up this year but then so he did it for a while and it was it was it's a it's really intensive work organizing events and then he decided not to do it anymore and eventually the company was taken on by some other people and they run it now. So he doesn't actually have anything to do with the ARC itself, though it's still going, it's still quite a big event. 
Do you want me to go on and say a little bit about how we ended up organizing events the second time around? Yeah, I was I was just going to ask you about the uh, Odyssey okay. rallies. Yeah, so, so, so Jimmy had really stepped out of um, event organizing completely. I mean, not only the ARC, which had been running for a long time, he also organized quite a number of round-the-world rallies, and we did some really interesting things like America 500, which was to commemorate Columbus's um, 500 years since Columbus crossed the Atlantic in 1492. So all that was going on. But then he really t retired. Although I say retired, he never really does retire. He really focused then on book writing his books and doing a lot of seminars around the world. And Cornell Sailing came out of that. So for a long time, Cornell Sailing was just focused on the books and seminars and talks that he was giving. But in 2012, it was a real time when um, climate change was much more on the agenda, but also a lot to do with climate change deniers, people really sort of thinking, oh, it's not actually happening. You know, it was a big controversy raging. And Jimmy um, felt quite strongly about that because places we visited, as we might talk about a bit later, when I was a child, like Tuvalu, uh, were really under threat from rising sea levels. And so we came up with the idea of running the Blue Planet Odyssey, which is a round-the-world event really to highlight climate change by visiting those parts of the world most under threat. So that meant going to some of those places in the Pacific. But as an extra thing, we decided to add in going up to the Arctic as well, obviously with the lowering levels of sea ice. Um, that was also a place that we wanted to visit. And on the back of that, we ended up organizing more Odysseys events. So that's where the concept of the Odyssey event came from. And we decided to run an what we now do, which is the Atlantic Odyssey, which is in its fourth year. And the Atlantic Odyssey really was to be something quite different from the ARC, because until now the ARC has been the only transatlantic event, but it's quite a big event, lots of people in it. We wanted to run a much smaller scale event, really focused on families and couples, because a lot of people didn't really want to take part in the ARC anymore. So that's really, in a nutshell, how the events happened again, which I work on now full time. So we've been doing it for four years now. So that was Jimmy retiring and then coming back again and getting all involved in it all over again. But there's quite a distinct identity to our events. As I say, there's this family aspect to it that, that we try to keep the entry fees as low as possible so people can take part. And we never have, we never let the events get really huge. So, so if someone, for fast. instance, were going on the Atlantic event or the Pacific, uh, maybe the one to the Marquesas, the Odyssey event, what, what would be the cost of that? Depends on the length of the boat, how many people you've got on board. Okay, for the Atlantic Odyssey, well, off the top of my head, I can't think exactly. It would be a few hundred dollars um, if you're just two, and you pay maybe another hundred dollars or two hundred dollars if you've got extra crew. So it's not, it's probably, I would say, about a third less than the ARC fees, generally speaking. And they so probably like get some sort of discount at the marinas that you stop at, maybe. Yes. So we have some really good, we have really good sponsorship from the places that we go to so we get free docking in um, the Canary Islands and also free docking in the Caribbean so this year we're going to Barbados the event we're organizing this year is called Barbados 50 as on top of the Atlantic Odyssey because it's 50 years since Barbados had their independence and so we're sponsored by Barbados and both our events are going to Barbados last year we went um, with the Atlantic Odyssey and to Barbados with the Island Odyssey. And the, out of the Island Odyssey came the Barbados 50. And the difference with that is the Atlantic Odyssey is a straightforward crossing from the Cape Verde, sorry, from Canaries to 
the Caribbean, but the Islands Odyssey last year and now the Barbados 50 goes via the Cape Verdes because a lot of people are stopping now in the Cape Verdes. It's become a much more popular destination, mainly because they they perhaps need to take on a bit of extra fuel or maybe they've realised that they haven't got quite the right crew on board. They might need to do a quick <laughs> crew change. That's quite a convenient place to stop. Um, but I think people are now starting to see it as a destination in its own right. So we're going to have a cruise around the islands this year. Jimmy just got back from visiting the islands, and they're much safer than they used to be. A few years ago, people yachties didn't really like to go there because there was a lot of theft from boats. But that's improved a lot. There's a good marina now in Mandela with good management. And Jimmy, he's never really spent any time in the Cape Verdes. They didn't sail around. They just went by. Um, they just were on land-based. But he said it was lovely. It was really, really lovely islands, interesting people. So it seems to be that's definitely becoming a more popular destination. And nobody else is doing a rally there. Uh, the Ark does have what's called the Ark Plus. So they have a stopover there. They do stop over there on their way um, onto the Caribbean. But they're not. that's just more of a stopover in one of the ports. They're not actually doing a cruise around the islands. And the big advantage there, of course, is that's the shortest possible route then across the Atlantic. So you've only got just over 2,000 miles from... If you go Cape Verdes to Barbados, it's 2,020 miles, multiple miles. So that's as short as you could possibly do it. Which for some people is a big attraction. If that if it's their first ocean crossing, they might be a little bit worried about it. So I was hearing somebody interviewed and they were doing an Atlantic crossing, and I was just kind of amazed at the number of miles they did in a a year just to get to the Med. Yeah, it's it's kind of a big trip. Which way were they going? They were going. They, they were they were headed east, so they yeah. were headed to the Med. Yeah, it's. I guess it's an easier trip from the Med than it is to to the Med, right? Yes, if you're going the other way. I mean, it is. It is. Yes, if you want to head to the Mediterranean, it's. If you're going from the like the east coast of the United States across to Europe, it's easier to get go further north, like up to Ireland, Scotland. I think it's harder to cut down south. Um, at least that's what I. I'm not the weather expert like my father is, but that's what I've gathered is. It's definitely easier if you're heading north. So, but, yeah. In terms of the rallies, I think one of the things that I noticed about the ARC rallies is that they have like a limit on the size of boats, that they really want to have big, fast boats in the rally. Is that the case for your rallies too? Do you mean a lower limit on the. Yeah, there's a, there's a lower limit of 40, I think, for the ARC events. Yeah. I've got a feeling ours is 27 feet. Okay, so that's um, a lot lower. That's a big difference. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a little bit, I mean, a smaller boat once. I mean, the thing is, what would happen if you're a smaller boat is it takes you that bit longer to cross, so you're likely to get there when everyone else is sort of left already. But, um, yeah, so we do, we do take boats under 40 feet. Uh, one thing that you touched on that I thought was really interesting was you were talking about the melting ice flows. And yeah. you, you and uh, Jimmy uh, participated in a Northwest Crossing. That's right. Northwest yeah. Passage Crossing up on top of uh, Canada and uh, Alaska. Yes. So um, in the summer of 2014, so Jimmy, I don't know if you know about Aventura, the new boat that he had launched, the ex- an Exploration 45. So it's a it's it's built in um, partnership with the Grand Large at the Allure um, boatyard. 
but it's a new design, aluminium boat, which was designed with it's sort of Jimmy. It's the first, it's his fourth boat, but it's the first time he'd had a boat actually designed with him, sort of put in some of his ideas. And it was really with the, the aim of high latitude sailing. So an aluminium boat, very well insulated and warm and lots of other features. She was launched in the early 2014. And then I joined her actually with my daughter came along as well. She was really keen to go up to the Arctic and we sailed with Jimmy and some other people on board. It were eight of us all together up through Greenland and made an attempt to go into the east, cross through the west, the Northwest Passage from the Eastern side. So if you imagine Northwest Passage is actually just a maze of, of islands up north of Canada and Alaska. Um, so it's like a huge archipelago up, go up there. And so, um, and you have this really short season where you can attempt to get through. So sort of really from mid-July to mid-end August, really that, that's your only sort of window when there, if the ice is going to melt enough for you to make, make it through. And that's really drastically changed in the last 10, 20 years because for hundreds of years, people tried to get through and they couldn't because there was so much ice there, even in the summer. But I mean, if you look at any of those, there's amazing NASA photographs where you can see the satellite photographs, the decline in the ice cap in the summer, how, how it's, it's just ever less of it. We nearly got through, but we didn't quite make it because it, it, 2014, actually, the ice, the last little tiny bit of ice right in the center didn't quite um, melt in time for us because the window is so short if you imagine you're going east to west by the time you come out the other side you've really got a huge long it's another couple of thousand miles to get yourself around the edge of alaska and through the bering straits and down into the pacific and get somewhere out of the winter the north of the pacific can get pretty rough at that time of year particularly getting into september so it wasn't quite feasible for us though a few boats did get through where were you iced in that was a place not far from a place called Arctic Bay, a little settlement up um, in Ad it's Admiralty Inlet. It's sort of I'm just trying to think. I can't think what the island was called now. Oh, I can't think what the island was. I've okay. got a map to hand. <laughs> but yeah, so that was in Canada. That was in Canada. Yeah, that was on the Canadian side. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I have heard some other stories, and I think there are a few choke points where the ice is very. There's a very narrow passage. And that's right that's right as i said it's a whole labyrinth of islands it's a little archipelago and so you never quite know and the ice depending on where the wind's coming from the ice gets pushed so even if it's melted and broken up it might all get pushed into one little bit and jimmy did because he was slightly frustrated about not getting through 2014 he went back in 2015 and made a second attempt but in the meantime because we we hadn't got through the boat being down the east coast of the states went through the panama canal went up the west coast and then he attempted it from the west side last year and actually to cut a long story short did actually manage to get through and then he went through it you might have seen that there's the, the um passage will come to me in a minute what it's called but that's a really narrow passage which has got these unbelievably strong tides and that's the way they managed to get through yeah i i thought i'd heard the choke point is more kind of on Yes, it is actually, generally speaking, you have more success of going from the west because the whole, if you imagine, you go through the Bering Straits and then um, that whole section until the, basically the middle of the passage is generally free of ice quite early in the year. And once you've got, if you do that big chunk and get yourself ready to go through the centre, which is always a tricky bit, earlier on, you haven't got much to do out the other side down into the North Atlantic. Coming the other way, as I said, you've got this, if you, even if you get through, you've still got a huge long bit left to do. 
most of the boats who are successful tend to go west to east. But it's really beautiful up there. I mean, although we didn't manage to get through, I loved it. I think it's just, it's not for everyone, that sort of sailing. You have to be very self-sufficient and not mind the cold. But it's so beautiful because you're in a really desolate part of the world where so few people go. And you do see quite a lot of animals, whales and polar bears and walrus. And and it's just, um, and the landscape's quite it's... harsh, but at the same time, it's, a, it's really beautiful. And the ice is fantastic. You see all the icebergs formation of the icebergs quite incredible so it's quite an addictive part of the world to go to sailor <laughs> it sounds like it'd be very hard to join the boat in places because all the places are very remote uh were yeah. you were you how long were you on the boat and where did you join it from the boat had been sailed up to greenland so with three people on board and the rest of us joined in Look, the capital of Greenland, around the beginning of July, and then we were on board until, well, most of the crew were on board till the end of August. So we had about six weeks. I had an extra couple of weeks because all the crew had to leave, and then it was just me and Jimmy ended up sailing down to Newfoundland. So about six or seven weeks. There were there were a couple of places if you were really desperate, you could have could have left the boat. Like Condinla is a little tiny settlement. There are flights out of there. Um, so, I mean, there are some settlements up in the up, up there. Yeah, there's some bush pilots that are willing to fly there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, well, that sounds uh, like a great adventure, and uh, congratulations on Jimmy making it through on the second try. Yeah, uh, he was quite proud of himself. In fact, more, more, people, have crossed, uh, more people have climbed up Ev- Mount Everest than have actually sailed through this passage, so it's still a very select view. Oh, I'm sure that's the case. I, you know, yes. I one of the things I mentioned in my book, uh, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, was that actually, if you look at the rates of people climbing Everest, and you look at uh, your father's figures, uh, and I did some estimates about how many people are on each boat uh, doing circumnavigations based on some circumnavigator lists, that the number of people climbing Everest except for 2014, 2015, which were disasters, yeah. there's more than people actually circumnavigating the globe by by the trade wind routes. So that doesn't I, surprise me. So a lot of people compare, you know, rounding Cape Horn to Everest, but I don't think that's actually a good comparison I, because Everest is kind of, for mount, if you follow mountain climbing, Everest is kind of for the amateurs. But K two or Annapurna eight thousanders in the Himalayas are seen as the more more dangerous, more difficult professional mountains that you really need to be an excellent mountain climber. And I would say that you know Northwest Passage, Cape Horn, that's more comparable to those those rarer prizes of K two and Annapurna than it is to. Everest, because in terms of the numbers, if you're going to compare, I think I think you're probably right, and also the preparation. I mean, I've I don't climb mountains, but you get the impression from what you read about Everest now is that it's all you can basically just turn up and it's all laid on for you. But if you're going to take your boat up to the Northwest Passage, you have to really be completely self-sufficient, as I said earlier. So you have to be prepared to rely on your own resources and have everything with you. So of course the Canadians are up there, and if something goes wrong, they would help you out. But it's not really right to have that attitude when you go. 
Um, you should really be not expecting to get yourself into trouble. You should be ready to get yourself out of trouble. So you have to really be well equipped and um, well provisioned, have enough fuel. If anything goes wrong, have enough spare parts. So it's a huge amount more um, preparation. That's probably why fewer people. Yeah, I, I'm interested when you in 2014 when you guys decided you couldn't get through. How did you get the boat out of the Arctic? So we just basically turned round. We got to Beachy Island, which is a really interesting place to visit. Every really every sailor wants to go there who's interested in the Northwest Passage because I don't know if you're you're familiar with the story of Sir John Franklin, who was a really famous um, British Navy captain who went up there one of the many attempts the British Navy tried to make to get through in the 19th century and then he his whole expedition just vanished and they could just couldn't work out where on earth they'd gone and later on they found some remnants but from, there were lots of expeditions up there and the Beachy Island is the um, place where the very last their very last um, uh, traces of them they, they wintered there that was the last place they knew about so they found it eventually the camp after they disappeared and so, so it's a really interesting place to visit. And so that's the place we got to and then realized that we'd been waiting around for maybe two, three weeks. You do a lot of waiting up there because you're just studying the ice chart. The Canadians produce these fantastic daily ice charts, which are all, I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're all color-coded, telling you exactly how thick the ice is in different places. So basically, if it's red, you've got no chance you can't get through. But if it's sort of green or yellow you may be able to get through. So you're just studying these ice charts like your Bible every single day. And it changes every day. We've been three weeks pretty much doing that. And then it, we realized it just basically um, wasn't going to happen. And several other boats about the same time as us made a decision. Because you've got to a point where you think, right, I can hang on a bit longer, but it's getting late. So then we turned around and we just headed right back to um, Nook nonstop, which took about week, 10 days. So we still had enough time to get ourselves out of there. And as I said, we lost some of the crew had to go home. Like my daughter had to go back to school. And then Jimmy and I sailed down to Newfoundland from there, which is another thousand miles. So actually getting out wasn't too bad. Why don't you tell me about your book, Child of the Sea? Right. Okay. So going from the Arctic to the most of my childhood was spent sailing in very warm waters, nothing really cold at all. Seems to have only done that later in my life. So Child of the Sea came out of, it was published in 2012 and... It's basically a memoir of my time sailing around the world with my family, which I did for seven years, from the age of seven to 14. Me and my parents and my younger brother, Ivan, two years younger than me. And by the time I... I mean, this happened in the early 70s. We came back from sailing in 1981. So I think it was quite a long time passed before I actually got around to writing it. But I guess partly was because my kids were sort of a similar age to me when I'd gone off sailing. And I thought it might be quite nice to write the story down. And also I was teaching at the time. So I was very sort of and studying, looking at a lot of children's literature. And I, that's why I thought it might be quite nice to write it, not as a memoir for adults, but actually aimed at children for them to read. And also to write it from my point of view at the time. Not A lot of memoirs will be written by adults about their childhood, but sort of looking back and reflecting on things. So I really consciously set out to write it um, how I felt when it was actually all happening and so I was actually very lucky just by a stroke of luck so I, I used, I had some old diaries it's quite difficult to go back, I don't have a really good memory so I had to really you know, try and think about things, so there were certain really significant episodes which, which I remembered very vividly and photographs are great as well so my father took hundreds and hundreds of 
pictures. So that was really helpful to study the pictures, and that helped to bring things back. And at the very last moment, when I was really starting to work on the final draft, my grandmother moved house, and we were going through all her things. She was moving into a little flat, and we discovered all the letters that my mother had written to her. So my mum, of course, the days before emails or even phone calls in those days were pretty tricky international phone calls. So my mother religiously wrote at least one letter a week to my grandmother. And they were lovely letters because they were very simple, but they were quite graphic. And she would be writing funny stories about, she'd be writing, oh, I'm so fed up with teaching the kids today. They just don't want to do their lessons. And so there were some really nice little things in there and then it brought back all this other stuff so that was a brilliant resource that I was also able to use so in certain places it really helped me to fill in some of the holes things that I really hadn't remembered and my mum writes really nicely so it was really it was very down to earth but it had all these little stories in there so that was really the sort of idea of, of why I sat down to write it at that point in time well I thought it was a, a very great story there's very few books kind of written from the perspective of children on a cruising boat and I thought that was very interesting since I'm a father yeah. uh, and I've cruised with my daughter um, so I thought that was really great to get your perspective on what it was like. Yeah and I wasn't I mean I was quite truthful I wasn't always a very nice child I was sometimes quite horrible to my poor younger brother particularly when I was like putting the teenage years and he was sort of you know I'd be like 13 and had this annoying 11 year old brother so I did try to sort of portray myself in all my sort of, you know, warts and all, as it were. One of the things I found quite interesting is having written the book, and I've done quite a few seminars with my father and talks myself, and, so it's, and also with the Odyssey events now, it's really nice having the opportunity to meet families who are just themselves setting off with kids similar ages. And then you, before that, you look at... When I, when I was actually writing the book, it's before I'd started working with Jimmy, so I'd, I'd really come out of the sailing world. I wasn't really very involved um, in things. My husband's not a sailor, so I wasn't really much involved. So I didn't really have much contact with sailing families. So coming back and meeting them again, when you're thinking about the modern world in which we live is so different from the world in which I was a child. You know, there were no electronics, no emails, no computer games, no DVDs, all the stuff which kids have on board these days just to entertain them. But what I found really heartening is that when you meet kids, and like with the Atlantic Odyssey, we always have a really good bunch of families. There'll be 20, 30 kids, all different ages, all different nationalities, all running around the pontoons. And you realize actually some of the things have remained the same that haven't really changed. And I still think it's one of the best possible things you can do with your kids if you've got the opportunity to take them sailing. You can't really give them that same experience in any other way. So I, I noticed that having had my own children now, the further I get away from my childhood, the more I appreciate how lucky I was to experience that. But it's still possible to do it. I just think, um, like I said, kids who grow up on boats, they have that opportunity to make friends with not only other children of similar ages, but people from different countries, adults, because you spend a lot of time with other sailors. So that just seems to be a really good thing sort of from a character building point of view particularly in today's I always say this I, I give quite a lot of talks about my book Child of the Sea and I go through the photographs and I'll always make this point and I talk about as I have some stories in my book about kids that I got to play with in the different remote islands in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific and we really live in an age where there seems to be so much more intolerance 
group of people who are different from us. And I think if you sail around the world as a kid and you meet all these people from different places, you're left with a real strong sense that actually they're all the same and we're all families and we're all kids together. So I think that's... Um, I didn't really say that in the book because I was trying to write it as you know, children, but that's something I will say if I'm talking to adults. Um, and if, if ever any parent comes up to me and says, well, I'm not really sure whether I should go, I'm just like, you should definitely go if you can. Well, I think that's true, and that was definitely something I learned as a college student uh, in uh, Scotland and in England, especially the first year in Scotland, was that, you know, you you, you probably, I think I certainly did, started from a very provincial view about, you know, um, us versus them, and, and then you kind yeah. of realize that everybody is really striving for the same thing, and... Uh, people are really nice all over the world so I, I i think that that is something you get from travel and maybe maybe not from superficial two-week travel but actually living in a place for a while and that's what you do on a boat that you you live in a different culture yeah i think that's a really good point because as you if you're just going as a tourist you might be hanging out in a hotel or something for a few weeks it's not quite the same if you if you go with your boat you're taking your whole home with you so it is quite a different um, experience, and you do have that chance to really become part of communities. Having said which, you it can you have to make the effort. I think when we were sailing with my parents, they they did make the effort. I mean, we did meet up with other sailors, and today you'll probably find the same. We wouldn't probably go outside of the bubble. They'd arrive in an anchorage. They might mix with other sailors. They might just prop up the nearest bar. But my parents always made an effort to take us out to go and visit places we were very so very fortunate because my dad was a journalist which is how he was basically supporting us was that he had to go and meet people so he was always looking for a good story or he worked for the bbc so he'd find if there was an interesting maybe um aid project or something going on in some of the remote places we visited go and interview those people that was also really good so that we had the opportunity to meet people we might not have met otherwise so thanks for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Tell your friends about it. Go ahead and like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That is uh, facebook.com slash slowboatsailing or at slowboatsailing on Twitter. If you want to hear the rest of the interview with Duena Cornell, become a supporter on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. Next week... We're going to have Tyler Brandt of the Wizard's Eye Expedition. And it's a great video series that he's put together. And he's almost all the way around the world. On our last passage, I updated uh, the, the Facebook and Twitter followers uh, to Slow Boat Sailing. And so if you're wondering where we're bobbing around in the great blue yonder like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter and you will have the news before everybody else knows it. Goodbye for now. Have some fun on the water. <laughs> that was so great. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.